Indeed, it is well with our souls because great is God's faithfulness, right? Those themes are connected. We cannot say it is well with our souls if indeed God is not faithful. But because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, he can be trusted at all times. He can be trusted for our future. He can be trusted for eternity. We can say it is well with our souls today and even in that future day. And so it's with that recognition of God's faithfulness to us that we can now come to his word, another display of his faithfulness, and that he has given us his word for us to know, for us to meditate upon, and for us to enjoy. So let's bow together as we approach God's word together. Our Father in heaven, we indeed praise you for your faithfulness. There is none faithful like you. There is none who remains unchanging like you. And so we throw ourselves upon you. We rest everything, our lives, our souls, our very beings and existence upon you. We know that if you fail, we fail. But we can be certain that your word says you will not fail. That your word and you are eternal and thus can be trusted at all times. I pray now as we open your word that you would increase that trust as we see all that your word has for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I invite you to open your personal copy of God's word, God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word that he has given to us. Open your personal copy, which is such a privilege to have our own copies. So many centuries of church history, they did not have their own copies to open, and yet men and women bled and died so that we could have it in our language Open that personal copy to Luke chapter 12 as we gather once again to hear Jesus' exhortation to us found in Luke, the gospel of Luke. As we approach the word this morning, I want us to think about the reality that each one of us have some sort of immovable center at the, middle of, at the center of our lives in which our lives revolve around Somewhat like the sun of a solar system in which all the planets revolve around that sun and the gravitational pull from that sun pulls everything together. So in each one of our lives, there is a sun. There is a gravitational center by which all of our lives, all of our values, all of the decisions that we make revolve around that center. So the question is, obviously, what is the gravitational center of your life? What is it that pulls upon everything in your life? What is it that exerts force upon each decision, each value statement? Of course, as Christians, we would say that Jesus is the center of our lives, and rightly so. But it's very true that our, sometimes our daily practice betrays the fact that he is not always at the center of our lives practically even though he may be there confessionally. Indeed, we can truly show at many points in our lives that although we may on paper and, and uh, confessionally be uh, trusting in Jesus, and yet in our day-to-day, moment-by-moment, that confession can slip and we can end up replacing it. And this is certainly the case with anxiety or worry. Even though we're trusting Christ for our eternity, even though we're trusting him for our eternal souls, we can tend to doubt him in the midst of our life here on earth. And it can sneak up on us, can it? I know for myself, I tend, tend to live my life fairly easygoing. I, there's not a lot that concerns me. In fact, that often frustrated my mother growing up. She'd say, don't you have a lot of homework to do? And I'd say, yeah, I'll get to it. I'll pull it off. I lived fairly carefree and didn't worry much about things that come. And that carried me through college, carried me through seminary, carried me through life. Until, of course, I was sitting in a hospital room as my son struggled for his life post-brain surgery. 
And it was there that that carefree attitude of trusting God was put to the test. Could I trust God in the midst of this trial? Could I trust God for the next moment? Because at that moment, anxiety was flooding my soul. I worried about the next moment. I worried about the next hours, the next day, the next weeks. How long could this go on? It was there that I, the truth of our text today, I had to remind myself anew and say, do I truly believe what God's word says? Do I truly believe what Jesus taught that I'm not to worry? That I can truly trust God for each and every moment that there is a father who cares for me? Author Jerry Bridges wrote a book called Respectable Sins in which he identifies sins that Christians tend to tolerate amongst ourselves and amongst each other. We might speak loudly against the big sins that are out there, and yet we kind of allow some, some sins amongst us that we don't really deal with. And thus we call them respectable sins. Anxiety or worry easily falls into that category, does it not? We think that we're simply being concerned about other things. We're concerned about other people. We're concerned about our children. Surely that's okay. But really it's just disguised anxiety. And we do worry about all sorts of things. The church is not immune to this. And our children are sometimes the very center of our worry, as was the case in my situation and I'm sure with yours. Even before we've conceived any children, we start worrying about children. And then they're conceived and we start worrying about their future and then they're born and we're worrying about how we're going to care for them. We worry about their, their physical needs. We worry about their health. They get into school and we worry about their grades. We worry about their career. We worry about their, their college. We worry about their jobs. And then they go off and we worry about them and their families and how they're living their lives and how they're ordering their families. But it's not just our children we worry about. We worry about our world. And the events of the world continue to come into our, the forefront, right? We worry about war. Worry about physical safety. Worry about our country. How degenerate can our nation get? How far from its biblical moorings will it slide? And what will this nation look like? What will it be like for our children and grandchildren? We can easily worry about such things, can we not? We worry about, in the midst of all of that, our finances. <laughs> Are we going to have a job that's going to pay the bills? Are we going to be able to afford a house? Are we going to be able to provide college for our children? Will we have enough for retirement? All these things tug upon us as we go through year after year. And so we can naturally fret about many things. And I'm sure you could fill up a list of many other things I didn't mention. But our text today is very clear that Jesus does not want us to worry. And so what we're going to see in our text this morning in Luke 12 is God's cure for anxious care. Last week, we started looking at this section about money, possessions, and eternity. This week, we're going to continue to the second part of that in which we look at Jesus' exhortation on anxiety. And so I want you to follow along as I read our passage this morning, Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 13. The text says this, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. He told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. 
God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Now from this passage... We began looking at three lessons, simply, on money, possessions, and eternity. And we did this so that we would see that money and possessions have its proper place in our lives. We want to be disciples of Christ that have money in the right place as God orders for us. And Jesus gave this instruction so that we would be able to order our lives accordingly. Now last week we looked at the first lesson and that was beware of materialism. Beware of materialism. And I would encourage you, if you missed last week, looking at you dads who were down at the father-son, which was a great opportunity, but I encourage you to catch last week's message. The exhortation that Jesus has for us is extremely necessary, particularly in our day, in our age, in our country, in our social location. We need to see the warning Jesus gives us that we do not believe that life is found in the abundance of things. We need to be on guard against materialism, against covetousness, against greed. But today we look at the second lesson Jesus has for us and we'll return to the third one after Easter. But the second lesson here is that we're going to look at this morning is to, Jesus wants us to refrain from anxiety. To refrain from anxiety. The first was to be beware of materialism. The second lesson here is to refrain from anxiety in verses 22 through 31. First, I want us to look at the command in verse 22. Look at verse 22. It says, And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. After the parable of the rich fool that he just gave, Jesus now narrows his audience. Notice verse 22. It says, and he said to his disciples. He now addresses his followers particularly instead of just the crowd. And now it may look like a change of subject with the change of audience, but really covetousness and anxiety are two sides of the same coin, are they not? that both of them are concerned about money and possessions. Both are concerned about getting rather than giving. Both are concerned about the physical rather than the spiritual. Or as one commentator said, greed can never get enough. Worried is afraid it may not have enough. But the concern in both is enough. And so in light of the the warning about the rich fool, there could be some disciples even there that day that were tempted to think, well, I certainly don't struggle with that. I don't have a land that's producing plentifully. My barns aren't overflowing. In fact, I left everything to follow you, Jesus. I got virtually nothing. I'm barely trying to get my daily food. But Jesus knows that with that position, 
There can be a temptation to sin as well, the sin of anxiety. And so he gives a command. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Do not be anxious. It's, it's, it's given in the present tense, which means it has an ongoing force. It's not a one-time action, hey, don't be anxious once. It's continually, ongoingly, don't be anxious. In other words, the habit of the disciple is to be free from anxiety. He says, don't be anxious about your life. Don't be anxious about yourself. If you follow Jesus, we aren't to be worried about our daily necessities. We aren't to be fretting about what we're going to eat, about the clothes we're going to put on. Now, for most people in that day, that was a daily concern. They didn't have all the modern conveniences. They didn't have the modern economies that enable us to just have food appear on shelves. They had to work for their food every single day prepare it. They couldn't refrigerate it. They couldn't keep it for later. It required constant labor. And it could be tempting to worry about that. Where's my next meal going to come from? But it's important to know here that even in this command, and as we go through this text, that Jesus is not saying that working for our food or working to gain clothing, that physical labor or, or work of some kind is wrong or bad. The scriptures are clear that work is good. In fact, God gave work before the fall. And so we are intended for work. We're made for work. It's good. The problem is when we begin to worry, when we're controlled by the fear of being without, when we're controlled by the fear of being without. Now, most of us today are not worried about where our next meal will come from, but we still find ourselves worrying about all, all, a whole host of things. And so it doesn't matter where the anxiety comes from. The point that Jesus is making is that we are not to be anxious at all. We must put our worries aside. And so in order to help us to see why we are not to be anxious, Jesus gives four reasons that we're going to look at this morning. Four reasons why worry should not be a part of our lives as disciples of Jesus. These are basic, easy to follow, but we need to see them because they help to put the nail in the coffin of our anxiety. Verses 23 through 30. Look at verse 23 first. The first reason uh, Jesus gives why we should not worry is because there's more to life than stuff. There's more to life than stuff. Look at verse 23. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Jesus reiterates what he gave earlier in verse 15, that life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. The things that we have is not where life and quality of life is to be found. In other words, our life is not to be oriented around our stuff. And that even includes our basic necessities. He wants us to be Christ-centered, not stuff-centered, not possession-centered. Because how is life more than food and the body more than clothing? Well, we're more than just physical beings, aren't we? We are physical and spiritual beings. We have a soul. And so we're not just bodies. We're not just animals that are here upon this earth. But we have an immaterial soul that will live forever. We are spiritual beings as well. You'll remember when Jesus was tempted, right, in the, in the desert. And Satan came to him and and tempted him with bread. And Jesus quoted Deuteronomy 8 verse 3 and he says, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus understood what the scriptures taught is that we are a fusion between physical and spiritual. And that we do not just exist for our physical needs, but that we have spiritual needs as well. And this is important for our day. Because we were not just created for the secular life, the life devoid of God that simply focuses on what's right in front of us, the materialistic life in which we only believe the material is all that exists. The biblical worldview affirms the existence of the spiritual, and we, we must live that way. Our, now, our worries and our concerns, all the things that weigh upon us, our anxieties, can cause us to be so focused on our physical needs that we can neglect our spiritual ones. Truly, life is more than food and the body more than clo clothing. There's higher purposes for us. 
But Jesus gives a second reason why we should not be anxious. Look at it in beginning in verse 24. And it's this, because God is able to care for you. Don't be anxious because God is able to care for you. Look at verse 24. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? In this second reason, Jesus gives two examples. He'll go from the ravens that we, I just read to also the lilies a few verses down. One is from the animal world, one from the botanical world. One describes God's care in providing food. The other describes God's care in providing clothing. And first, Jesus calls us to consider the ravens. Don't you love ravens or crows? I have to say, I enjoy watching bird watching. I have an app on my phone to identify birds. I love listening to bird calls. Uh, but I don't like crows. <laughs> I don't like ravens. They're just, I and mean, their sound isn't even pleasant to hear. They're often the ones waking up at a campsite, right? They're like early in the morning just squawking away. And I don't think they're really loved, really. I, I'm, I if, you, if you know of a culture where they're actually like revered or something, let me know. But as far as I know, they're pretty much despised in every culture. And even in the Jewish culture, um, they were considered unclean according to the Mosaic law. Leviticus 11 verse 15 designated ravens as unclean. And so the Jews avoided them. And they would pick through the trash, as they do now. They would, were scavengers picking through dead bodies, uh, carcasses on the road. And so they were generally avoided and hated. And yet, Jesus brings them forward as an example. He says, listen, Jews, think about the raven, okay? I know they're unclean, they're nasty birds, you don't like them, whatever, but consider them, think about them. That even with this sour reputation... God Almighty who made them cares for them. He doesn't neglect them. Even though God called them unclean, he doesn't avoid them or neglect them. And notice that these ravens don't just sit around waiting for God to feed them. They're not idle. They are constantly scouring. They're working hard for their food. But Jesus points out that they don't sow or reap. They don't, they don't work for their food as we do. They've got to wait for something to die or they've got to, they've got to find, depend on others to be able to get their food. But in the end, God feeds them. They can't store their food for later. They don't have barns or storehouses, but God feeds them each and every day. And so Jesus' point is that we too can trust God because we are of more value than the birds. And again, this is a foundational category for the biblical worldview that is actually controversial today. But we are more than animals. We are have more value than the animal kingdom. Animals are special creations of God, indeed. But the scriptures are clear that mankind has more value than animals. We are not on the same level. We are not just a more advanced species or more advanced animal. We are of a different category because we are image bearers of God, Genesis 1 tells us. We bear the image of God that animals do not. And so while we love our animals and our pets and we care for them and all the rest, they do not have inalienable rights just like we do. Animals are valuable, but people are more valuable. And so we should trust God because we are of value to God and God will care for us. But the second example from nature that Jesus gives us, I want you to see in verse 27. Consider the lilies, he says, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet, I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. He says, the, think about these lilies. How they just sprout up in the field. And they're absolutely beautiful. And God is caring for each one of them. Now, these are probably not the lilies that we think of today, or Easter lilies, or different things of that sort. Uh, it's a word generally for flower. The scholars don't know exactly what, word, what flower he may be referencing, but one that is common to the area that he may have been speaking of uh, is, a, is a purple flower um, because it's got, the same, it's got the same color as a king's robe. And remember, he compares the flower to Solomon's clothing. And so, a, a curious possibility, possibility at least. Jesus says these flowers, they don't have to sit down at the loom and like weave their clothes together. 
that God just enables them to suddenly have this inherent beauty. And he says that their beauty is greater than that of the richest king, King Solomon. They have more beauty, more wonder than the greatest and richest king. And these lilies don't worry about where their beauty is going to come from. They're not there in bud form and going, oh no, I hope I have beautiful color. They just know it's going to happen. God takes care of them, Jesus says. And then look at verse 28. He goes, he continues. He says, but if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? God clothes the, clothes the grass. This insignificant grass that just grows out in a field suddenly gets this beautiful shower of color. And it's so insignificant, in fact, that when it dies and withers, it's collected and uses fire starter in the oven. That's how insignificant it is. And yet, God has taken care of such an insignificant thing as the grass. And so if God can take care of something in such, with such insignificant value, can't he not take care of us that it has so much more value than a blade of grass, than a flower? But the significance of these comparisons is found in this, that when we cannot trust God to supply our needs, but instead worry and fret over them, we are showing a basic lack of faith. And this is what Jesus highlights at the end of verse 28, by calling his disciples, O you of little faith. To all of you disciples who are not able to trust God, that are fretting and worrying about what's going to happen in the future, he calls us out and says, oh, you of little faith. By worrying and being anxious, we are acting in that moment like God doesn't exist or God doesn't care or God is not powerful enough to actually meet our needs. We are saying something about God every time we worry. In fact, you say we are saying something negative about God every time we worry or fret. In fact, you can write this down. Persistent anxiety reveals a practical atheism. Persistent anxiety reveals a practical atheism. We are essentially saying by our worrying and our wringing of our hands and our fretting that we don't believe there's a God in heaven that can, that can act. There's a God in heaven that cares. And so he's calling out his disciples and us who are too attached to this physical world. That we're so concerned about the things of this life and what we have and what our children will have and all this that we become worried and fretful about them. And so we need to recognize that when we are worrying, that we are showing a deficiency of faith. That we are not trusting God in that moment. I like the story about the reformer Martin Luther who under, at a particular time was going through some great care and great burdens upon him and was very concerned and worried about what lay ahead. And so one morning his, he woke up to see his wife dressed in all black and surprised he asked her uh, who had died. What's going on? Why are you, why are you in your, your black dress. Do you not know, she replied, God is in heaven, God in heaven is dead. Luther retorted, how can you talk, talk such nonsense, Katie? How can God die? Why, he is immortal and will live through all eternity. His wife asked him, is that really true? Luther replied, of course. And yet, she said, though you do not doubt that, yet you are so discouraged and worried. Luther then realized the contradiction of his belief and his behavior and repented of his anxiety. His wife taught him a valuable lesson. George Mueller, who was a man used of God in the 19th century England to care for thousands of orphans. And he is remarkable, mar remarkably known for his faith in which he never let anybody know any of his needs. 
He cared for thousands of orphans and never told anybody how much money was needed, how much food was needed, how much milk was needed, and yet God provided. His story is a remarkable one if you've never read it, to hear how God has provided, provided for them every step of the way. And he said this. He said, the beginning of anxiety is the end of faith. And the beginning of true faith is the end of anxiety. These like oil and water. They don't go together. We can't trust God and be anxious. We can't be anxious and trust God. And yet the Bible is clear that we must live our lives in faith. In fact, if we don't do anything in faith, the Bible says it's sin. Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And Romans 14 23 says, Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Very clear. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So worry is not a necessary evil. It's not a personality trait. Oh, they're just a worry wart. That's just the way they are. No, friends, worry and anxiety is a sin. A sin that we must repent of. A sin that we must go to Christ for forgiveness for. A sin that we can find cleansing from. And so we need to ask ourselves, am I guilty of the sin of anxiety? Don't look at anxiety as like, oh, I just need to be better about that. That's not the path to biblical change. The path to biblical change is through the doors of repentance. If we recognize sin in our lives, we can't just go, oh, I'll try to change and be better. The path to biblical change is first confession before Almighty God and saying, yes, I have sinned. I agree with your word that I have sinned. And then it's a turning, a 180 degrees away from that sin and looking to be different. Paul says to put off the old man, to renew our minds, to think differently according to the word of God and to seek to put on the character of Christ. There must be a positive put on. What's the put on? It's trusting God. We can't just stop being anxious and live in this neutral land. It doesn't work that way. We repent of our sin and we trust Christ. Well, let's look thirdly at the third reason that Jesus gives us why we should not be anxious. It's because anxiety is useless. Anxiety is useless. And you may have noticed that I skipped over verses 25 and 26. I did that in order to group together the two natural uh, illustrations that Jesus gives us. But here in the middle of the two, he dropped another reason. He says, And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? The question is rhetorical because we all know that we cannot add a single hour to our span of life. His point is simply, that anxiety is pointless, it's useless, it's fruitless, it's senseless, it doesn't do anything. And yet we spend hours, days being anxious. <laughs> and he just tries to pull back and goes, okay, let's just say, you know, that you're actually trying to accomplish something. Are you seeing any results of that? Using the example here of, of adding an hour to his life. I like, came across a quote this week. He said, some, someone who said, worry is like a rocking chair. It will give you something to do, but it won't get you anywhere. <laughs> it gives you something to do, but it doesn't get you anywhere. And isn't that true with worry? It just keeps us occupied, our minds, so consumed with these things, these cares and concerns and burdens. Now, a lot of translations have Jesus saying that you can't add a single hour to your life. But the King James and the New King James translates Jesus' words something like, who can add a single cubit to his stature? Kind of different. And it really could be translated either way. There's, de there's good debate on either side, which is why there's differing translations here. Um, but I think that it makes more sense to see it as adding an hour to one's life than adding a cubit, which was 18 inches, to someone's height. Uh, that seems to be more of a common worry that Jesus would be alluding to. I mean, how many people are really looking to grow another 18 inches? I mean, it's, you're going to, some of us would go from the tall to the freakishly tall. You know, it just would just be a little bit odd. Um, so, I mean, there's some of you that wish you had 18 inches, but... Uh, 
No, the, it seems like adding an hour to one's life seems to make more sense. But again, either, the point is the same with either illustration, right? Worrying is useless. Whether <laughs> you're a high school boy who's hoping to do those 18 inches to make the varsity basketball team, or whether you want to live a little bit longer, which is a common desire. But notice verse 26. Does Jesus call adding an hour to one's life a really hard or big thing? No, he says, if then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? He's like, hey, mortals, if you can't even add an hour to your life, then why are you worried about anything else? And we're going, wait, add an hour is a small thing? To Almighty God it is. But to, and so he's saying, listen, you can't even do the smallest thing of all the things that I do. Adding an hour to someone's life is like the smallest, and you can't even do that. So why are you worried about all the rest of the things that I take care of? Worrying does not do anything. It does not keep our children safer. It does not help us have enough money for retirement. It doesn't help us beat traffic. It doesn't prevent accidents, suffering, or pain. A anxiety doesn't do anything for us. It's absolutely useless. And in fact, anxiety actually hurts us, right? Pastor of a prior century wrote this. He said, anxiety is the rust of life destroying its brightness and weakening its power. Another man wrote, a day of worry is more exhausting than a week of work. We gain nothing from worry. In fact, it actually drags us down. It sinks the ship. So, don't be anxious. Why? Because it's useless. The third reason, or fourth reason rather, Jesus gives us, we should not be anxious because God knows your needs. God knows your needs, verses 29 and 30. Jesus returns to his main point and expresses it again. He says, and do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. Do not be overly concerned about your physical needs, worrying about how they will be provided. This last verb here in verse 29 where he says, nor be worried, is this idea of restlessness. This idea of shifting between emotional states. This, and isn't that the case when we're anxious? We're just, we're unsettled. We, we're pay, people pace. They're fidgeting with things. They're moving around. They can't sit still. They're not at peace. They're not at rest. Jesus says, stop being restless. Don't fret about these things. But then he gives a different reason in verse 30. Look at it. For all the nations of the world seek after these things. The nations of the world is a Jewish expression to reference unbelievers. Those who are outside, in this case, the, the nation of Israel, the Gentiles, but picked up and understood by the New Testament writers as those outside of Christ, those that were unsaved, that did not know the Lord. And he says that unbelievers seek after these things. They pursue them. The same word, seek, that he gave in verse 29. The unbelieving world are worried and concerned about their welfare and their future. They're worried about their basic necessities. They're worried about their luxuries. And they devote their lives to acquiring more and will kill to get it. I mean, desire for more causes world wars, right? It's fundamental, a fundamental desire of the human heart that prompts people to do crazy and evil things. Truly, the nations of the world seek after these things, right? They are slavish to their desires to make these things happen. And yet Jesus says, listen, if you follow me, you're to be totally different. The nations of the world are clamoring this way, and you're to be in a totally different category. Why? Because of a different relationship. He says, and your father knows that you need them. Your father knows that you need them. What's the difference between our neighbors right next to us and what they pursue and how they use their time and their money and their resources and live their lives until the day of their death? It's because we know the father, friends. We know the God who reigns and rules over all. And he intimately knows each 
one of our lives and our circumstances. He knows what's going on in your life. He knows what you need, probably even better than you do. He knows the difference between your wants and your needs. He knows what is best for you. Your father knows what is best. And so the ways that we live our lives, the way we live in the midst of all of this stuff, in the midst of our occupations and our jobs and all these things, is not clamoring after the same things that the world clamors after. Because we know a father who knows us and knows our needs. For all those who have believed in Jesus, God has moved from being our judge and our creator to being our father. We've been adopted into his family. And how has that happened? It's because of the love of God and his grace towards us. It's not because we earned ourselves that we somehow were able to do enough righteous deeds so that now we could be accounted amongst God's family. And so now we're a part of the holy club. And because we're part of the holy club, God takes care of the holy club. Oh, no, friends. We are only where we are. We only know the Father because in his grace... He plucked us out of the world. He saved us from the certain fate that our sins deserved and chose to adopt us into his family to unite us to his son. An irreversible bond for all of eternity that we would be in Christ. And because we're in Christ, we receive the blessings of Christ. We are a son a fellow heir with Christ, so we can call God Father through Jesus, the true Son of God. In other words, the gospel gives us a new identity that causes us to live differently, to handle our possessions differently, to handle our money differently, to handle the future differently. Because we have a new relationship with God. We can rest easy knowing that our Father knows. One author said it this way. He said, God looks over us, but he never overlooks us. God looks over us, but he never overlooks us. I like that. The great 19th century evangelist D.L. Moody said this. He says, I know of no truth in the whole Bible that ought to come home to us with such power and tenderness as that of the love of God. This care that Jesus is highlighting, we must set our heart upon and not forget. Charles Spurgeon said, nothing binds me to my Lord like a strong belief in his changeless love. And I pray, friends, that each of you are able to be bound to the Lord by being reminded of his changeless love for you through Christ. Well, this brings us to, well, then how should we live? If we're not to be anxious and we get it, Jesus, there's all these reasons we shouldn't. What's the alternative? And we come to the alternative in verse 31. Verse 31 says, instead, a clear change, a clear turn. Instead, seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. Jesus' alternative is this. Reorient your lives toward the kingdom. Reorient your lives toward the kingdom. They shouldn't be oriented around the things of this life and of this world. They should be oriented towards the kingdom. Now the big question is, what is the kingdom? And what does that look like? Now most people use the kingdom today to refer to just about anything spiritual or anything relating to Jesus. And there's a sense in which everything spiritual, everything scriptural does relate back to the kingdom in some way because I would say that the kingdom of God is actually the theme of the whole Bible. So everything in the Bible some way relates to the theme of the kingdom. But I believe we can get more specific on that. The kingdom specifically, as the Bible describes, is a time of peace on earth in which Christ will reign physically upon this planet. When Jesus will sit upon the promised throne of David in Jerusalem upon Mount Zion, and there will be peace upon the earth and righteousness will be over the entire land. This is the kingdom that was promised in the Old Testament. It's the kingdom that Jesus offered to Israel when he said, behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. 
But of course, when he offered it to them, they rejected Jesus. They nailed him to the cross. And so this kingdom will be fulfilled on this earth in a future day when Jesus returns. So what is the kingdom? The kingdom is a future time of peace when Jesus reigns upon the earth. So then how do we live seeking the kingdom today if it's a future thing that will come when Jesus comes? Well, those who have trusted in Jesus today have had a transfer of citizenship. Paul says that our citizenship is in heaven. That's because that's where our king is. But our king is going to return and we're going to be resurrected and we're going to dwell upon the earth. We're going to reign with Christ when he comes back to reign upon this earth. So there is still a future stage, a future period of world history upon this planet that we're waiting for. But our citizenship is in that kingdom. We've already got our ticket. We know that we already belong to that future kingdom. And so all of our lives are to be oriented towards that day, towards the return of Christ, towards that future day and time. We don't live for the here and now. We live for that day. We live for all the things that relate to our heavenly citizenship. So even though our kingdom citizenship is presently experienced, the kingdom occupation is not. We're awaiting the king for us to experience the kingdom in full. But until that day, we orient our lives around the king. We orient our lives around Christ and his kingdom. We live submitted under his lordship because we believe as followers of Jesus that he indeed is Lord. Amen? So we obey him. We, the Bible calls us his slaves. We happily, we've been set free from sin to serve Christ. And so we live out the ethics of the kingdom by obeying the scriptures each and every day. We live out the community of the kingdom here in the church as we show our love for one another. And we're on mission to seek to prepare other people for that coming kingdom that they too might have their citizenship transferred from this world to the next. As my predecessor used to say, the kingdom is a physical kingdom entered through a spiritual door. Every person must enter that spiritual door today in the here and now in order for them to have access to that physical earthly kingdom in that future day. And so, how does this relate to worrying? How does this relate to anxiety? Well, instead of being anxious about the future, anxious about all the stuff that we have in our lives and whether we have enough, we should orient our lives around Jesus and recognize that one day all of our wildest dreams are going to be fulfilled. To know that, that we are not looking to build our best life now. That we realize our best life is still in the future and we can forego now and we can let go now and we can endure suffering now because this is not our home. We live for a future day in a future home. And yet too many in the church live as if this is their home. Collecting and gathering as if this is where we're going to live out our days. But it's not. This is such a temporary blip on the span of eternity, friends. And we need the scriptures to remind us of that. Because the advertising and everything all around us tells us that we need to soak it up now. But it's a fool's errand. We'll find ourselves empty. And so we seek the kingdom, just like the world seeks after all of these pleasures and devotes time and energy and effort and money. So we devote energy, time, and money towards the priorities of Christ. We must remember this gospel and orient and prioritize our lives around this gospel. We must meditate at the gospel Preach it to ourselves, preach it to our families, preach it to our neighbors and our friends, whoever will listen. We must prioritize the gospel by funding the gospel, by giving of our, of our resources to continue to, to see that the gospel goes forth, both here locally and around the globe. And as we prioritize gospel work, God will take care of his own. He's promised to do that. Don't you see how everything gets clarified when we realize this isn't our home and we're headed towards a future kingdom? Now, some of you here today may be hearing about all this anxiety and all this help that Jesus gives and yet you're recognizing that you've been shackled with anxiety for a long time. Well, the answer 
to your anxiety is to go to Jesus. And I exhort you, go to him today. Don't carry those burdens of worry and concern any longer. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's promised that he will care for us. And as we, as we go to him and repent of our sin and recognize that we've been trying to live our life our own way without him, and we confess that, and we trust in him and his sacrifice upon the cross, that through his work we are able to be saved from the wrath of God. We are then able to be given an inheritance that is unperishable, unfading. And so by going to Jesus, by trusting in him, we are able to offload the burdens and cares of this world and to know that God is with us and God is for us. That is the peace that we can have. And so, friends, we all have real concerns and real burdens. This passage does not say that the Christian goes through life carefree through a bed of daisies. The New Testament is very clear that there are real suffering, real pains, real concerns, real burdens that we carry. But we can carry those without being anxious. In fact, we cast those upon our God who cares for us. The only way that we can weather the storms of life the only way that we can weather persecution for our faith when all of our stuff may be taken away from us is by trusting in our Father's care, by orienting our life around Christ and his kingdom. And as we do that, church, we will find our needs met every step of the way until Christ calls us home. Let's bow together in prayer. Our God, we just confess to you this morning our tendency to be anxious. Our tendency to fret over the things of this life. And yet, Lord, we need passages like this that remind us that this world is not our home. And that we have one who cares for us a God that this world does not know, this world has rejected, and yet we know you, our Heavenly Father, and so we ask, O oh God, that you would please change our hearts. We recognize that we can be so scared, so fearful, so anxious, but we ask that by your Spirit, you would please transform us from being an anxious people to be a trusting people that you might give us a grander view of you, greater trust in who you are and what you can do, and that we would live in such a way that sees Christ at the center and to trust you for the rest. And Father, as we see that transformation, we will give you the praise because we know that we can't produce that on our own. You are in the business of changing hearts, and we ask you to do that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.